Hey, Select 5 fans, before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans, and it could lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to choice.crd.co. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. As the old saying goes, you can take the girl out of the mitten, but you can't take the mitten out of the girl. Our selector today is an Oakland-based Michigan-bred DJ who's here to talk about music from her home state and how it shaped her personality and her musical ear. folks, this is Pam Torno. You're listening to Select 5, the podcast that introduces you to creatives and community builders from the Bay Area and beyond through a conversation about five songs that matter to them. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with someone who specializes in all forms of music that inspires movement. Her name is Sarah Mujahid, a legal professional by day, but by nights and weekends, she becomes DJ Muji. Muji brings people to the dance floor at events all over the Bay, and she's been at it for the past eight years. She's also a resident DJ in the Afrobeats Oakland crew, and though she currently calls Oakland home, her roots are in Michigan, and she's here to talk about the life-shaping music from the mitten that made Muji who she is. Sarah, it's an honor to finally get to chat with you. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here with you. You make me sound so cool. (laughs) (laughs) You are cool. It's not me. Believe me. Um, What's the vibe like out there? People are really coming out of their shells now. Yeah, you already know. I mean, with, you know, the last couple years and the effect that it's had on nightlife, um, I think people are definitely just eager for music and togetherness and just the ability to kind of shake off (laughs) the last couple years. So um, definitely a lot of energy in the nightlife and, you know, day party scene. Yeah. So you're obviously, you're a very active DJ, um, but you also have a a day job, so to speak. I mentioned in the intro that you work in law. Uh, I understand you're a paralegal and you used to work at the ACLU, but you recently started a new job. That's right. I, you know, I know it's not uncommon for DJs to have to balance two professions, but it, it, it just sounds like a lot. How do you do it? I mean, how do you personally do it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something I'm still trying to figure out. Um, it's, you know, especially living in the Bay Area, it's almost necessary <laughs> to have multiple streams of income. Um, I also think it's just, it helps, like, to have other things going on just to not burn out on one thing. But I think it also can lead to just burnout generally because, you know, there's only so much time in the day to get things done. Um, But I just feel like, you know, it's really great to have a creative outlet like DJing for when, you know, you have long days. Um, You know, I worked at the ACLU, the Immigrants Rights Project. So, you know, part of my tenure was during the Trump administration and we were fighting a lot of legal battles on behalf of immigrant populations. Um, and so almost the DJing was like kind of necessary for me to, you know, just kind of take my mind away. I can hardcore relate with that. Cause obviously this, <laughs> this podcast is not my day job either. Um, but it, you know, it's a labor of love, but it's, you know, it, it's work on two different fronts, I guess. But um, they both seem necessary. Exactly. And yeah, I totally get it. Yeah, they're both kind of like service oriented in a way too. Um, So I feel like that's one way that they overlap. 
Well, I was actually going to ask you about that exactly. Do you see a parallel between what you do working in basically civil rights uh, and as a DJ? Um, or are they, they don't, they're not completely, two completely different passions, right? They, there is some kind of parallel there? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just, in general, just like in terms of, you know, um, it's people oriented, you know, and I feel like, you know, even though I am an introvert, like I really do love people and I love their stories. And I think that, you know, um, like civil rights and music, you know, they tell those stories and they advocate for those stories and those voices. And, um, a kind of cool moment that happened for me in the pandemic, um, you know, I work out of the San Francisco or I did work out of the San Francisco office and it's a smaller satellite office. So, you know, we didn't often really get to interact with our colleagues in the New York, um, national office. Um, but in the pandemic, they had this thing called community hour. It was like a variety show where folks could just like come in, spend time, you know, get their mind off work, off the pandemic, share, you know, fun, odd talents. And I was asked to DJ the first, like one of the first shows. And then they, this was done live or in an in-person thing or it was, it was virtually on zoom. Okay. So it was like in, you know, in April, I believe of 2020. And so they asked me to kind of like showcase my DJing and I, you know, opened up and then I closed and they asked me to come back and I ended up becoming like the resident DJ for community hour. We did it every week for like months in 2020. And, um, and then it became kind of like a staple of like our pandemic ACLU culture. And so I was able to get visibility amongst like everybody in the organization and they all kind of knew me as DJ Muji. And so it was just like a really cool moment to be able to like showcase my talent, but also offer, you know, healing in the times of need. That's great. And, you know, so rare to work in an environment that kind of respects and appreciates what you do outside of the office. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely never expected that to happen, but I feel like it was one of my highlights, you know, in my experience and, you know, music just brings so many of us together. And so it was cool to just relate to so many folks on that level. So you mentioned, um, I read another interview with you and you mentioned that your dad is a jazz musician. Yes. So um, I would imagine that has a lot, he has had a lot of influence on you, on your musical tastes and sensibilities. Would you say that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, he was a, he worked for Chrysler for years, um, you know, and growing up, he grew up, he's from Highland Park. So he was, you know, right in the heart of Motown. Um, and, you know, just growing up, I just always remember, you know, him playing the piano. There always being some jazz music in the background. My mom loves music too. So we spent a lot of time on the road too, visiting my mom's family in Pennsylvania. And I just feel like music was just like always playing, you know, and it was generally jazz music of some sort. Um, and so, you know, it's just very fitting having grown up in Michigan. Um, I feel like that's some of my earliest memories. And I'm, I would imagine that's probably how you developed your passion for DJing. How did, how did you discover that? Or was it something that you've always known you wanted to do? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like it definitely planted that seed for me. Um, I think, you know, just those long car rides, you know, having a, 
like tireless kid in the backseat. You know, my parents would try and engage with me over the music and be like, what instrument do you hear there? What do you think, you know, what do you, who do you think this is playing? And so it was always kind of fun, you know, just like listening and engaging in that way. And then I feel like the more I listen, the more that I was just tuning in, I would start to kind of train my mind and think like, oh, like I could hear this song coming in next and I can hear that coming in here. And that's essentially what beat matching is, right? And Mm -hmm. as you know, and so it's like, you know, I spent a lot of time in my head, just like DJing in my brain in a way. And so I feel like a lot of folks have that capability, you know, just in as music listeners. And so I feel like that really kind of like planted that seed for me early on. So what that was all you were DJing in your head. Do you remember the moment when you were actually when you actually put your hands on actual, whether it's turntables or what, I don't, what, whatever tools you trained yourself on. What was that like the first moment when you actually like put a record on and like, you know, tried to beat juggle or whatever, or whatever, how what yeah, was that moment to- like? Totally. Um, I think, you know, early on before, like I actually physically started DJing, you know, I was definitely into just like curating, you know, LimeWire and Napster and Kazaa, like all those sites, you know, we're like downloading music, we're making <laughs> yeah, mixtapes for friends, you know, burning CDs, all of that. So I remember being like heavily into just like, like, you know, Oxcore DJing before that was a thing. And, um, you know, just like making playlists for parties. And um, I also remember having a job I worked for an estate liquidation um, company and, you know, so we would come across all these like old trinkets and I found some old turntables and I remember being like, okay, I'm going to teach myself how to DJ. I was like 20, 21. I didn't have the equipment I needed. I didn't have the mixer and I just remember feeling really discouraged. But then a few years later, um, I'm out here in the Bay Area and I'm just like yearning for some, you know, for just the moment to finally put pen to paper, so to speak. And I was like, okay, and I bought my first, um, you know, I got Virtual DJ. That's what it was, Virtual DJ. And I just started messing around with some tracks. Then I ended up buying a little controller, teaching myself the actual mechanics. And then I remember um, driving down to LA to go to the do-over uh, with a friend of mine. And while I was down there, I bought some turntables off Craigslist. I definitely probably spent way too much money for it, but it was like the complete setup that I needed. And then from there, I just remember teaching myself essentially and just learning on YouTube and just spending a lot of time with just the actual mechanics of DJing and beat matching, making mixes, putting them out there. And then years later, here we are. And all the while you act, you were still working. Were you working as a pure paralegal then or you had, you probably had a full-time job that wasn't DJing. So you're doing this on the side the whole time. Yeah, I was actually in um, a graduate program at Cal. And so I was a student. I actually, the, I think some of the money that I used was probably from a refund check. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But um, anywho, um, you know, I definitely remember, you know, like having papers to write and just like using music as kind of an outlet to, to you know, like just escape from some of the monotony of that life. And then I was a paralegal for a family law firm and I was DJing as well, you know, and, and when I, when I officially like first got my start, I was just putting out mixes on SoundCloud and the makers of Trap Art reached out to me. They actually wanted me to host one of their events. Trap Art, I don't know if you know, but they, you know, are a collective where they, you know, highlight local artists and they, you know, give them the opportunity to showcase their art for free um, and just give them the platform and kind of like, it's like a marketplace and a party. 
Um, and so they originally wanted me to host the party, which, you know, you just like invite your friends and have them come through. But then they found my mixes on SoundCloud and they were like, yo, we love your sound. We love your ear. Would you be down to play for us? And so I opened up one trap art in summer of 2015. And then like I was on every party thereafter. So I was essentially when I first got my first gig, like I was DJing every weekend for years. And so I don't think I realized just how um, kind of uh, strenuous that would be, but I just really wanted to make it, you know, so I just did what I had to do. Yeah. So now uh, you're you're basically an open format DJ, meaning you don't stick to any one style. You play a little bit of everything, hip hop, R&B, trap, house, Afrobeats. Um, but lately you've been more embedded in the I'm a piano scene and now you're bringing modern South African house music to the Bay. How did that happen? Yeah, um, man, um, just to go back a little bit, I think, you know, it's, for me, it's really important to be able to play just whatever compels me or whatever I feel like the moment calls for. And so I, I just really pride myself on being able to, yeah, navigate through different sounds in that way. And I think, you know, early on when I was playing in clubs, like I might've gotten, I, I kind of got boxed in a little bit. And so I feel like when I started playing more Afro beats and I'm a piano out in the world, it was like me really being able to kind of like buck back against that and just like play what I felt was beautiful and necessary. And so, you know, when I found I'm a piano, um, I was actually stopped by a friend uh, and a fellow DJ and collaborator. And he's one of the co-founders of Afrobeats Oakland, Wanji. He was um, just playing early on, it was like, you know, before anyone really shows up, he played a couple records um, from the Scorpion Kings, that's DJ Maparisa and Cabza de Small. And I remember the first song he put in, I just like jumped up immediately. I was like, what is that? And he was like, oh, he was like, yo. And he told me about it. And I think from that moment on, you know, like I just like dove in head first, like anything I could find. I was just like researching it, listening to it, like um, and I think, the, you know, the last few years, the sound has really grown and proliferated across the world. And I'm really happy about that, for sure. Can you, for folks who don't know what Ama Piano is, um, can you say a little bit more about it, where it comes from and how it evolved? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it qu- quite literally means like the pianos. And mm-hmm. um, it's um, it's like a hybrid of house music. It's got a lot of like jazzy bass lines, percussive, you know, sounds. Um, the e-log drum is like the signature drum sound. Um, and you know, some folks say like like some of those bass lines stem from Kwaito, which was you know a popular genre stemming from you know, South Africa. And -hmm. it was like the voice of black youth after apartheid. And so, um, you know, that Kwaito is a bit more slowed down and it's got more elements of hip hop. And then I'm a piano is kind of like an iteration of just like house jazz, um, just a lot of different sounds. And I feel like, especially given, you know, my, uh, you know, upbringing in the Midwest and my love for jazz, um, and house music and just, hearing all of those sounds together so beautifully you know i mean we hear it in soulful house as well but it's something that's like super punctuated with the bass lines and i'm a piano and the beautiful melodies that layer on top 
like when I heard it the first time, it really just like, it was something that was just like very visceral for me. It felt like something, you know, just like ancestral in a way. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've only listened to a little bit and I, I hear what you're saying. It is very beautiful. And, and I, for me personally, I, I like that tempo. So exactly. Um, yeah. It's a good tempo. It's a really good pocket for sure. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about your uh, Midwest upbringing. Um, being a Michigan native is something that you're obviously very proud of. Um, mm-hmm. It's what you came on the show to talk about. Well, actually, you talked about it a little bit, um, but tell me a little more. Yeah. So I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, at this point, if we were in person, I would probably point to my hand and like physically show you. Yes. Like every, <laughs> every friend from Michigan I know does that same thing with the palm of their hand. Yeah. Exactly. Um, We're super basic. Um, But no, Ann Arbor, Michigan, home of the Wolverines, um, uh, University of Michigan. I'm a University of Michigan grad, go blue. Um, So I was, you know, born and raised in Ann Arbor. And it was, I think my parents picked Ann Arbor, you know, it's a liberal suburb town, but it was kind of like smack dab in the middle of their commute for work. And so, you know, one went to, uh, Auburn Hills one way and my mom worked in East Lansing. And so it was just like a little equidistant place for us to settle. And, um, yeah, that's Ann Arbor for you. I mean, really small liberal town. And it's how close is it to Detroit? It's about like 25 minutes away. Okay. So super close. Mm -hmm. I kind of like it, liken it to like, Berkeley and Oakland, except maybe a little bit further away. But in terms of just like, yeah, just like even the personalities of each place, I think they're very similar. That's a good analogy, Oakland and Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, the just the amount of world shifting music that came out of Michigan is just astounding. And I think that's what we're probably going to touch on a little bit with your selections. Exactly. Um, so we're going to get into it right now. Um, these are songs that shaped DJ Muji and you picked the perfect way to start this conversation because we're kicking off with Stevie Wonder from Saginaw. As around the sun, the earth no seas revolving And the rosebuds know the bloom in early May so from songs in the key of life that's as uh, released in 1976 one of the monumental classics from his classic period um what memories do you have attached to this song oh my gosh i feel like yeah songs in the key of life but particularly the song, it just reminds me of like my parents and just like being young and just like listening to what they listen to. And, you know, my parents, um, yeah, they're a bit more old school, right? Like jazzy, jazzy, uh, folks and like, uh, soulful music, you know, Marvin Gaye, all of that. Um, but like this song, I just have a lot of memories of like, kind of like really understanding like Stevie's musical genius and, you know, just even like the chord progressions and like shifting between like the major chords and the minor chords. Like it was just like, I remember having moments like where that song would play and I would like break out in tears at how beautiful it was. Um, And 
I don't know if you have those moments. I'm definitely like a super crier. There are songs that will just make me cry because they're so pretty. Some songs, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have to be alone. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can't cry in front of someone else. But yeah, I let I let my emotions take over. There's like a Roberta, not to go down a rabbit hole, but there's a Roberta Flack song that when I play it by myself, by the time it gets to the end of the song, I'm not weepy, but like I'm close to it. So I get it. There you go. Okay. So I'm not alone. Okay. So no. that song was like one of those songs for me. Like every time I hear it, it just like really, it's just evocative. I think the lyrics are beautiful. Um, and yeah, I just feel like Stevie is just, we all know he's just like one of one, you know, and he, um, he just has, I just feel like I have a lot of like fond memories of just like listening to that song, listening to that album. Um, but particularly that song, um, and it's it shows just the power of, of music and song to evoke. And um, one thing that's actually really cool, if anyone knows this story, it's probably you. But have you ever um, seen the movie The Secret Life of Plants? I haven't seen the movie, no. Okay. I have the album. Okay, okay. So Stevie, right, he was, um, he scored that. He, he The journey through The Secret Life of Plants was the score for that film. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the first album that came after Songs in the Key of Life. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a big departure from that sound, right? It's like a very experimental album, um, really synthy and like instrumental, otherworldly. And um, apparently, um, I actually just recently saw this film on 420, but um, the producer would describe to Stevie in detail what was happening on screen. And the sound engineer would specify like the length of each passage. And so he would compose, he composed it based on that. And so just like speaking more to Stevie's genius, like yeah. I just feel like it was just like amazing. And actually Overjoyed, which is another one of my favorite songs, was written for that film, um, but it didn't actually make the album. Oh, is it? Is this available on streaming services? Because I'm going to watch it. It's on YouTube. You can look it up on YouTube. And like the film is beautiful. It just like, it talks about plants and how they're sentient beings and like, you know, how just like the interconnectivity of all living things and consciousness and, and how, you know, consciousness and awareness, is, it binds all of us as, you know, God's creation. It's just like a beautiful film. I definitely recommend it. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, he had the unfettered creative freedom to be able to make that album because of that amazing contract that he was able to negotiate around that time right right by then like his his contract with Motown his old contract with Motown Motown had expired so they had to renegotiate with him by the time he was this massively popular artist yes and so he negotiated that he had all this creative freedom to do what he wanted to do and he kept the rights to his publishing and that's probably the reason why songs in the key of life it took him two years to make that up they made he made them wait two years um for that album to come out so it's just great i mean not very many artists (laughs) were able to do that especially at that time exactly and i think you know i you know i wasn't alive at that time but i did hear you know that there was maybe some confusion about his subsequent project, The Journey um, Through the Secret Life of Plants. But I think I think it just speaks to his, yeah, creative genius, like the fact that he just put that out. And, you know, even though the, crea- the reception may not have been strong, I think looking back, we can just all appreciate his range. 
Well, not to take the, uh, we sort of went down a rabbit hole here. I wanted to ask one last thing about the song as, because not just instrumentally is it beautiful, but the lyrics are very much something that one can resonate with. Yes. Um, it's, I think people interpret it two different ways. It's either a statement of his faith in God and, or it's a statement of um, unconditional love for someone. Mm-hmm. Um but I think there's, I, is there, is there a particular set of lyrics that you resonate with? Oh man. Because the part, I, the part that I like, um, I mean, it's the part where he's growling. <laughs> um, it sounds like it's sort of like an admonishment to think about your place in the world and what you're doing to make it better. And, and anyway, it's just this song and Stevie Wonder in general, he's he's just one of those lyricists and and creators who you're just more socially conscious when you're listening to his songs. Like it's not it doesn't just move your body. It just move. It also moves you spiritually, I guess, is what the song. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And I definitely feel the um, the just this the unconditional love piece. I think that comes through and really just not just for one person, but just for like all of us as people. And I, you know, in that first, you know, that first bar, um, just as hate knows love that loves the cure, you can rest your mind assure that I'll be loving you always like that. Just like, ugh, you know, um, I think it just gets to um, a lot of the human condition and just like love being the antidote for a lot of things. All right, we're going to stick actually kind of in the same vein. Um, we could obviously talk about Stevie Wonder this entire podcast, but you have four other songs here. Right. Um, staying in the 70s with another all-time Motown classic that's meaningful to you um, and to me and to so many that it needs no introduction, really. Picket lines and picket signs Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see Okay, so I have a feeling our technical producer, Brian, who is from D.C., would probably want me to point out that Marvin Gaye is a D.C. native, but <laughs> Detroit can claim him, too, given how synonymous he is with Mount- Motown, uh, especially this song and this album from 1971, What's Going On. Uh, tell me what Tell me what you want to say about it. Oh, man. Um, I can't. I can't remember the moment I heard this song, but I just remember really resonating a lot with the lyrics. And, you know, I think music just has the power to, yeah, to tell stories, especially stories that may not be super familiar to you, um, but that you can still relate to on a deeper level. And I feel like, um, I mean, the song is just beautiful, right? He sounds amazing, of course, because it's Marvin Gaye. but just even from the beginning of, you know, you just hear like the chatter, like, yeah, like what's going on? What's happening? You know, just like every day kind of banter and chopping yeah. it up and how, you know, really the things that he's talking about are as routine and as common as just like everyday conversation, you know, police brutality and like war and like, but really what he's asking us is to like, on a on a deeper level like a call to action like really talk to each other let's talk can we talk about what's happening around us and just the fact that you know decades later it's still super relevant and um sadly it is so so sad but i think it's still like it implores us to really like 
try and do what we can do to, you know, make the world better and to, you know, in our, in our communities and yeah, just have these conversations. Um, well, sure. you say it's a call to action. Do you think this album or the song had any part in inspiring to do the work that you do uh, in fighting for people's civil rights? I do. I think like not so like overtly, but I think it it, it awakened me in a way to like really like because you know, like I said, I'm I'm from a small town, and you know, I was blessed to not have to deal with a lot of like overt. Um, you know, tragic realities. I think, you know, I definitely dealt, understood a lot of more covert um, uh, things with xenophobia and, you know, mm-hmm. discrimination and racism. But, um, you know, I, I lived a good life coming up and I think it just really woke me up to a lot of the stuff that was happening in the world at that time and made me kind of look deeper at what was going on currently. And so I think it really woke me up so to speak and um you know another fun thing just having looked into you know listening to these songs and preparing for our conversation like I didn't know that the actual genesis of the song came about because um Obi Benson from the Four Tops also from Mm -hmm. Detroit um arrived in Berkeley on a tour stop and witnessed an act of police brutality at People's Park that's right. So there's a little bit of a Bay Area connection there. Exactly, exactly. And so just like kind of knowing that, you know, I'm being, you know, I, I lived actually in Berkeley for six or seven of the years that I've been in the Bay Area. So like just that synchronicity was like pretty wild to me. Um, but yeah, I definitely think this song helped kind of awaken me to a lot of things. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you um, now that we, you know, we just talked about Stevie Wonder and now we're talking about Marvin Gaye and Motown. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously not from Detroit or Michigan, but these are songs that I've known practically all my life. I feel like these are artists and songs that belong to the world now. Mm. But what is it like for you growing up? in the shadows of Motown to borrow the film title mm. and knowing that this is music from your own backyard. Like, do you feel, do you have a sense of ownership over this music more so, or like what kind of conversations did you have um, about Motown when you were growing up and Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye and Diana Ross and all in Smokey Robinson and all these artists? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think, you know, it's just more pride than anything. I feel really proud to have, you know, come from somewhere where such a rich foundation was birthed, you know, like so much creativity, so much innovation, like so much ground breaking contributions to music on multiple scales. Um, I just feel a lot of pride, you know, and, you know, the fact that I grew up in Ann Arbor, like, you know, there's a lot of, Folks, folks will be like, now nah, you're not from Detroit, which I'm not, you know, my, my yeah. people are, you know, my family is, um, but I do have a, a deep connection to Detroit. And I just feel, I just feel proud to have even shared any sort of anything with these greats, you know? Well, let's talk about some more modern greats. We're going to fast forward to the new millennium uh, and queue up Muji's selection number three, representing Michigan, representing Detroit. 
super microphone and sing we know to spit, man. I spit fire like Esther on Seth and his son did. I'm wrong, Luke. More juice to sun kiss. You want this? When Jake saying the rap. Okay, it's the year 2000. The song is Thelonious, which is a collab between Slum Village and Common. And it was actually released on two albums. It's on Slum Village's Fantastic Volume 2 and Common's Like Water for Chocolate. Uh, so this song often shows up on, on, if you see any internet list of Dilla's best beats or best tracks, this is pretty much always on it. Sarah, tell us why it's on your list. Man, um, for multiple reasons, um, and kind of stemming back to what we were talking about, just um, the fact that, like, I mean, Dilla, one of the greats ever, the greatest ever, you know, to touch the pads and to, you know, produce. And, you know, just the fact that, you know, when we get even verses from Dilla, like, I just love that, too, um, hearing him spit on tracks. Um, Slum Village, obviously, just, like, very Detroit. Um and I, yeah, I just remember having a, a big sense of pride um, listening to Slum Village. And I remember like hearing one of their music videos on like 106 and Park and, you know, just kind of stemming back to where we were talking to, about just in terms of loving the fact that I am coming from the same place that these greats are. And um, Thelonious, you know, obviously a nod to the great Thelonious Monk. And I feel like you know, from my dad and my, my mom, like listening to, you know, I listened to a lot of Thelonious Monk growing up and my dad playing piano, you know, Art Tatum, um, so many jazz musicians like really influenced him, but Thelonious Monk specifically. And even though the track itself doesn't like beyond saying, uh, what, what's the, it's the, it's the Thelonious super microphone. Exactly. Besides that, like, but we all know what they're talking about. Right. And even though, you know, they don't really expound upon, Thelonious Monk, like the feeling is there. And um, just that baseline, I feel like, again, back to just like my appreciation for production and just like instrumentation, like the baseline, the way it, it's just like pulsing the whole song. Mm-hmm. Um, sample, the, it was probably one of my first, that record, that whole like Fantastic Volume 2 is like my like real introduction i feel like to like sampling and to to dilla and to to beats you know um yeah i was gonna ask you if this song if this song played a role in sharpening your sense of rhythm and your mixing skills and techniques when you dj yeah absolutely you know and and like you know get this money like all the songs that came from this record like i think um they they really shaped me um and they i think it really helped kind of like introduced me more to like just like hip hop and production and just like a lot of um a lot of the different elements that make hip hop so great um so yeah yeah i mean not to make this all about dilla but i guess i'm kind of going to do, <laughs> do that it's it's hard not to i mean once you like any one of his tracks that he's produced it's it's hard not to get a little bit nerdy about what is he doing what is he sampling because he's such an inventive beat maker and he brings the humanity into something that's programmed and just, uh, you know, even the, the, the sample, uh, the piano sample that he uses in this song is a, it's a George Duke uh, sample. 
but it's it's slowed down so much so it's unrecognizable and so it's funny how the it, i mean he's everyone knows he's just like this crate crate digger extraordinaire and he sampled all kinds of things but just the idea that he he hooked into one moment in a song that perhaps would not occur to someone else and he went i'm gonna make a beat out of that exactly it's just what that's mind-blowing that's crazy right and then the way the song yeah it starts out and then just just hearing the way he flipped that like is ridiculous like how does how do you go from that to the you know and i think there's a lot of people who can do that now um but jay dilla is obviously one of the origins you know he's one of the gurus of doing all of that i'm not going to pretend to be fluent in rap song structure and production techniques but i know what i feel and i feel like there's just you know the way the song sounds like such a laid-back groove but it's also has really complex timing um it's just i it I, I think it's great. And obviously you do too. Um, I also, um, I don't know if you know that. So he's been bubbling up in the zeitgeist these days because of a new book that just came out called Dilla Time. Yeah. Uh, I've been seeing that. Yeah. And it's just, I, it, I'm putting that on my to read list for sure. It looks amazing. Yeah. And I love how uh, the cover is like the NPC pads. Um, and then his like, Oh yeah. It's yeah, yeah. kind of like, yeah, yep, exactly. Um, yeah, you'll have to let me know how that is or let me borrow it after you're done. Okay. <laughs> um, well, okay. Let's actually uh, talk about another talent who uh, left us too soon. Uh, your fourth selection, which is from Aaliyah. All right, from her last album, the self-titled Aaliyah, released in 2001, uh, which is sadly the same year she died at age 22. Uh, how did this song influence you? Uh, Aaliyah was just like the prototype to me. You know, like there's like Beyonce stands. Like I love Beyonce too, but Aaliyah was it for me, you know, and yeah. I was maybe 13 when she died, not to date myself. But, um, oh, you know, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a youngster, but I feel like I just, she was everything I wanted to be. And like, just like, so loved her. I mean, TLC was up there for me too, but Aaliyah was just everything. And I feel like this song more than a woman, she was just like, really like for me, she always challenged what a woman was like. She was a tomboy and like, you know, I was too, like I was an, a real big athlete growing up a little goofy looking like long limbs and just like struck you know just trying not to to find my womanhood and my girlhood and um you know I played basketball and I played soccer and um I you know just trying to get in touch with myself and I feel like she really was like a conduit for that for me and like the fact that you know just in the music video if you remember like mm -hmm. she's wearing like a pantsuit but like yeah, also you know, yeah exactly yeah rock and baggy clothing I feel like she, you know she, but she was still so elegant and still beautiful and still womanly and so just like back to you know the song itself you know I'm more than a woman like I'll be mo more than these things to you you know and and even like yeah, just at that time when like video visuals were 
popular, you know, like I just music videos as a kid were part and parcel to music listening. Mm-hmm. And so um, I loved that video. It felt super futuristic. You know, you got yeah. Tim- Timbaland on the production, um, which is always timeless and amazing. Um, and like, yeah, I just felt like she was always pushing boundaries and was just like well ahead of her time. And it's still relevant and like could fit in today. And I yeah. think so. Yeah. I listen to that song now and I'm like, it doesn't sound of its time. It, like you said, it, it sounds pretty futuristic. It sounds like one of his tracks, the, that jumpiness, the bounciness, that deep synthetic bass. Exactly. It's so funky. Yes. Um, the video is a lot of fun. Yes. She's just one of those, you know, because she died so young, she, she released three albums before she left. Um, I think it's interesting that her, her name, Aliyah in Arabic, it translates to the highest, most exalted one or something like that. And I feel like that's, <laughs> that's what her, her fandom, that's how they think of her. Um, that's how she's certainly seen. Do you, do you ever think about like the, the what ifs, like what, what she, what would she have done with her career had she all lived? the time, all the time. Um, yeah. It's one of those like haunting things in a way too. It's just like, man, like this is what she was doing then, you know, just having been around just a, a few years even, um, I think about it all the time. I think about, yeah, the influences she would have had on artists and just kind of what, what, what else she would have done with her creative talents, what other roles she would have stepped into, you know, she was acting too. Like I just, yeah, I think about all of those things all the time. Yeah. The other thing about the song is, you know, we talked about Timbaland. The techniques that he's using, it's just like, it's so him, I guess. I, I'm just wondering if this is another one where, like, your interest in production, is this one of those songs that does that for you? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I think, yeah, even Are You Without Somebody, I know we're not talking about that song, but, like, that was another one um, for me where... Yeah, just like the intricacies of just like what he was doing, and you're just like, what? Do he, what are these little sounds and you know flips? And yeah, I think Timbaland, he's a huge influence just on the sounds that I was listening to growing up, and definitely um, someone who I like look up to on the production tip for sure. Um, we are we're gonna crank up the tempo now uh, with Muji's fifth and final selection. Uh, this is apparently a Detroit classic from the Ghetto Tech days. Okay, this is most definitely a party track that commands attention. Uh, it's called... Godzilla and Sarah, you were very passionate about including this in your list. So tell me, uh, tell me what this song means to you. Man, I, I just knew I had to put something from that era, the ghetto tech, just the genre, but like you just, Godzilla is just the one. And it's just like, you had just had to be there. Like I remember being in high school and, you know, back when, like I said, we were, you know, burning CDs and, you know, it was just very, something very underground about these songs and about Godzilla in particular. You know, it was always at like the parties, 
you know, it was at like the family reunions, like, but it was just some, it was something that resided with the people, you know? And it was like, you didn't know who made the song. Like, it's like, it's by DJ Snowflake, but there's the originals by someone else. Like there's all these remixes. And like, I just remember having CDs upon CDs of just like all these tracks, you know, tracks by DJ Assault, DJ Godfather, Snowflake, like even folks from Chicago, um, are kind of like, you know, mixed in there. Um, but it was just, it was just a vibe, like the tempo and, and, you know, like twerking is like a thing nowadays, but back then we were freaking, you know, and like, <laughs> like that was like what I'm used to. That's what I'm, you know, back, back in that day. And like, even just like the dancing elements, you know, a lot of times like sounds and different genres come with a culture, right. It was just like a culture too. There was jitting is what came well jitting came before that but you know it was just like fast footworking and movements and like um i just remember being at parties and seeing folks battling you know having jit battles and it was just like a very deeply detroit thing and if you were lucky enough to have been there like you will definitely resonate with the song for sure can you orient us a little bit in time with this what what period are we talking about late in the late 90s or yeah, I think so late 90s for me it was like early 2000s, you know, I'm I'm starting high school. So that's for me when I kind of st- I remember being I was a freshman in high school and you know riding around with like the upperclassmen and this was always playing in somebody's car. So it was very much a car song to you even though I I think a lot of this was happening in probably warehouse parties and stuff just all of the DJs that you mentioned, I think they, they had to modify their turntables in order to pitch up the songs as fast as they, this is like 150, 155 BPM or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. And just crazy fast. It obviously never got too far out of Detroit, but it was like you say, a very definitely a Detroit thing, but how did it go from like warehouses to, um, it was played on the radio too, right? Was there like, there was a lot of radio shows that played this stuff? For sure. Yeah. It definitely made it to the, to the radio. Um, you know, I just feel like it's just one of those things that just like, like mixtape days, you know, where it's just like getting passed from people from person to person. And like, you know, folks are here at their cousin's house and then they, it makes it to the the, you know, the school function. And then, you know, it just like kind of circulated in that way. And yeah, we would listen to it into the, in the car, we'd be dancing to it at parties. Like it just like very much was like the turn up anthem. <laughs> Have you ever dropped this into one of your sets as an Easter egg to see who on the floor is from Detroit? You see <laughs> somebody starts doing the footwork? You know what? I haven't done it in the club, but I remember doing some pandemic sets uh, just on Instagram and having a little ghetto tech moment, um, playing like, I don't know if you've heard the song freaks by DJ Dion. I'll put it on my my playlist for you, but it's another classic. Like I remember having like a little moment where I went between that. I did some, you know, Baltimore club music in there, some Jersey club music and, um, and folks, folks who, who knew what it was were from Michigan. So it was like a cool little moment of like nostalgia, you know, it was in the pandemic and it was just like fun to kind of like imagine being at a party together. 
with those classics playing. That's amazing. All right, before we let you go, I have a feeling you probably have uh, more than a few honorable mentions. Any other influential Detroit or Michigan artists or songs you want to shout out real quick? Oh, man. I mean, artists, so many, like Anita Baker, um, Aretha, you know, like just shout out the women. I know I think I I, I gave Aaliyah some love, but like there were so many women holding it down. Like you said, Diana Ross, um, even some contemporaries. Like I love Big Sean. Big Sean actually. um, Oh, he sampled that Godzilla sampled Exactly, exactly. You already know. And Danny Brown, who's another one of my favorite Detroit rappers, he sampled. Oh, yeah. He sampled um, one of like the ghetto tech anthems, uh, Need Another Drink by Disco D. Um, that's another classic. I'll, I'll, I'll throw you, uh, that song too. Um, but love Danny Brown, love, you know, Binary Star, like one of my classic, just one of the classic rap groups. Um, Wajid, um, the White Stripes. Like, I feel like one thing that I didn't touch a lot on, like I have a, I have a lot of love for like, like rock music, alternative music, um, really just music of all genres, but, um, I feel like the white stripes love them. Um, yeah, we could go on for days. Madonna, <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> oh, that's right. We forget that she's from, uh, Michigan because she reinvented herself in New York, but exactly. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking us on a very short tour through the music of your mind. This was great. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. All right, folks, because five songs could never do Michigan justice, we've got a whole playlist curated by DJ Muji uh, with some of our favorite musical offerings from the Great Lakes State. And we will share that link with you in our show notes. Uh, She's also got lots of mixes on her SoundCloud, which we will also share. But if you want to catch Muji in person, follow her Instagram at DJ Muji, M-U-J-I-E to find out when and where she's spinning next. Thanks for listening to our show, dear listeners. Endless gratitude to Select 5 producer Kate Sullivan and technical producer slash theme song composer Brian Douglas. Until next time, this is Pam Torno saying peace, everybody. Peace.